I'm Ryan Krofchek, and this is the Opera House Story Sessions, the podcast that brings you the histories and the folklore of the people who've carried and continue to carry the music born out of these hills and hollers. Today, we'll hear from my conversation with Mike Burns, who plays a myriad of instruments in Juanita Fireball and the Continental Drifters, an old-time band here in Pocahontas County that's been playing in these parts for over a decade. Their debut was actually at the Opera House in 2008, but their name dates back to the 1970s, when Mike and his buddies were going and playing at music festivals. In those days, Mike explains, it cost $5 to get into a festival. Okay, and in the 1970s, $5 was a lot of money. But if you played as a musician, you got your money back. So every time, every weekend, we would go to a different festival, we would come up with a different name. And so we're driving down somewhere, and I see a mailbox, and it had a name like Juanita Fireball, but it's B-A-U-G-H. And I said, hey, let's be Juanita Fireball. And Odell's, where do you get that name? And I said, it was on that mailbox. Well, he was a geology professor at Washington Lee, and he was big into continental drift, okay, the tectonic plates and all that stuff. So when we got there, we performed as Juanita Fireball and the Continental Drifters. We never used the name but one time. But when we started playing here in Pocahontas County, I thought, why not dig that name back up and use it again? And we've used it ever since. And I don't know, you know, we won a few of those contests. That's how we were survived in the 70s was, you know, each weekend you'd, you might win a hundred bucks, but that's a lot of money, you know? And uh, that gets you through Two, three months. Wow. <laughs> Back then, I was just a couch surfer. <laughs> but Mike's days of couch surfing are over. Now he and his wife, Mary Sue, who's also known as Lulu, the banjo player in the Continental Drifters, are both retired teachers. Mary Sue is equally as passionate about old-time music as Mike is, and they actually met at an old-time jam back in the day. I taught forestry and wildlife management. And, and your wife? She did chemistry and science and physics. Yeah. Now, um, so you studied forestry at WVU, right? That's correct. That's, that was the thing. We had that little forestry club, and the forestry club had the jug band, and I started playing the guitar with the jug band. So we went over to see the West Virginia Fiddle and Banjo Championships. And we got inside there, and all of a sudden, this guy came out there and sat down. And he started playing, and he played clawhammer banjo, and that guy turned out to be Dwight Diller. And that's the first time I'd ever heard clawhammer, and I thought, now, I like that. And so, long story short, he was at WVU at the same time, and uh, he was teaching some other people how to play. And I sort of wiggled my way in there playing guitar with them, and then... One thing led to another, and then next thing you know, I was I was playing banjo. But what was good about it was they'd all left Morgantown, so I was the only banjo player up there at the time. So <laughs> worked out pretty good, and uh, that was my that that opened my door to come here to Pocahontas County, and I would come down and visit with Dwight and uh, some of these other musicians. Somewhere along the line, at a festival, I ran into those young guys over in Virginia. 
and they actually had come from all over. One was from Oklahoma, one was from uh, Philadelphia and all, but they ended up in Lexington, Virginia the same time I went over, and that's when I started playing the different, not the West Virginia tunes, but the, the South West Virginia and North Carolina tunes with them. So this is an important moment for Mike because he says there's a big difference between the often lonesome and crooked sounds of West Virginia tunes and the lively Virginia tunes. Now you talk about like West Virginia tunes are these kind of lonesome and they're crooked. And yes. Kind of eerie. Yes. And, you know, and dark. Yes. And then you're talking about these, you know, Virginia tunes that were almost happy and more yes. melodic. Yes. And, and it's all about dance. We went to these festivals all over uh, West Virginia. And I'd been playing all this old West Virginia music like I'd, I'd played for you here a little bit ago. And all of a sudden, way off in the distance, I hear this, it was kind of happy-like. You know, this banjo and fiddle music and guitar, and it was just driving and driving. I'm thinking, man, that sounds pretty good. So I wander over to where the music was coming from, and lo and behold, it was a bunch of young guys, except for one. Now I say that because my old buddy, he was the old guy and he was 40. <laughs> the rest of them were, were 20 my age and I still know and play with them today. And I heard their music and suddenly I was bit with this different sound. It wasn't this lonesome West Virginia uh, kind of crooked music. This was just really happy, fast, hard driving music. And uh, I mean, it bit me like you wouldn't believe. And so bad that when I graduated from college, I moved straight to Lexington. And for the next year, that's the kind of music I was playing. So it's kind of a combination of Southwest Virginia and uh, Round Peak, North Carolina type music and uh, add a little bit of West Virginia in it. But here's a tune that kind of got it going and it's, you know, it's kind of fast and furious and kind of crazy. And, but we always enjoyed it and uh, just go crazy with it. Can't quite keep this thing in tune. But anyway, I heard that music, and so. I was spending most of the time at festivals. There was a festival everywhere. Old Fiddler told me, he says, it's all about the dance. Mm -hmm. So when you get really rocking on some tunes like what Mary Sue and I were playing there at the end, you can see how that's going to get you up and moving and all, versus the Hammonds is Mr. Lee or uh, Sherman or Burl. If you've been listening to our other story sessions, you've heard other musicians talk about the Hammondses, the family that helped forge the old-time sound on the Appalachian frontier. Here's Lee Hammonds, who you hear Mike call Mr. Lee, playing a tune called Walking in the Parlor. Mike didn't just spend time with the Hammondses. 
He hung around and played with nearly all the big names of bluegrass and old time from this part of the country. Mike is about to list off a bunch of names of musicians and festivals, and if you don't recognize the names, well, don't worry too much about all the details. Just know that these folks are a big deal, and collectively, they shape the sound recognizable today as old time or bluegrass or something in between. Because these musicians were such a big deal, Mike had friends come from all around just for the chance to play with them. And we would go visit Melvin, and we would go down and visit Wilson Douglas, and we would see Ernie Carpenter, and then, you know, we would all cram in my little apartment on the weekend and play music, and, you know, and then at festivals, I can remember, Melvin would have me play banjo with him first, because they would do, the older guys would do performances, you know, and there's music going on everywhere, but the older guys would do these performances, so I played banjo with Melvin, and then waited, and Wilson came up, and then I played with Wilson, <laughs> and I remember a friend of mine came up and says, could you ask one of them if I could play? I just, I would just love to play on stage with them one time. He was a fiddle player. So I said to Wilson, I says, Wilson, can Scott come up and play some fiddle with us? You know, he just really wants to play and be, you know, on stage with you and all that. And he looked at me and said, yeah, but he stands in the back. <laughs> so we lined up, he stood in the back and he got to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah that's right. Yeah. But anyway, these guys were, they, you know, it was just really, Interesting, and, and the great part about it was I learned from them face-to-face, -face, not off of a YouTube or not off of a TV or something like that. And that's why I tell a lot of people, I said, man, I'm bona fide because I learned the same way they did. Mm -hmm. And if you learn it that way, you pick up on their habits and stuff, and being as inclusive as they were, you wouldn't turn anybody away. Mm -hmm. You'd say, come on, let's play and have fun. And yeah. that's what it's about. Now. Knowing what you know now, did you know what you were in, like, you know, the royalty of it? Or do you think that even now? I, I, well, when I look back on it, I was kind of like living history. Yeah. Okay. But I didn't really appreciate it as much then as I do now. And if I, if I'd really thought about it, I would have taken my cassette player and played it more and taken pictures. I never did. When we think about old-time history in this region, in particular, no single family has a greater influence on this kind of music than the Hammonds family, who Mike spent a lot of time with. Lee Hammonds, who you'll hear Mike call Mr. Lee, Maggie, Sherman, and Burl Hammonds. Those are just a few of the names you'll read in the history books. While the Hammondses were a musical family, they were not a family band. And by no means did they play together all the time. They played individually. They didn't play in groups. And, you know, I would go visit with Mr. Lee, and I spent a lot of time up in Thomastown there with him, and he was just such a, a wonderful guy. And his music was just really soft and easy, but that's the type of personality he had. Mm -hmm. Until he decided to go up the hill to his garden, because he got me up one morning really early. He says, you're going to go help me in the garden. And man, it was foggier, and we went up that hill, and. All I saw was the box of his shoes all the way up. He was up there in the lickety split, and I barely made it to the top. <laughs> oh, up in his garden, but man, he would you know, get up there and I'd help him in the garden and all. And that, that was one thing about these guys. When I first went to visit them, whether it was Wilson Douglas or, or Glenn Smith or Melvin Wine or Mr. Lee or whatever, mm -hmm. there were a lot of times I would go back and visit with them, and we didn't even play music. We'd sit around and talk, or we'd go out and walk and look at the garden, or I'd, and Mr. Lee was always building something. We'd, he'd show me what he's building and stuff. So it became a friendly thing, and you get to know more about the person. You just don't go there 
for the music. You go there because, you know, enjoyed their company. Right. Yeah, and you're not picking up just music craft. You're picking up right. the well, garden. Another thing, another common thread, though, was my forestry background because all of them worked in the woods right. at some point in their life. So it wasn't just a, you know, just a music relationship. It became a, a personal thing, and, you know, we just enjoyed each other's company. See, that's the, that's the thing. It's just like, you know, with, like with Richard Hefner. Richard Hefner is a bit of a living legend here in Pocahontas County and beyond. Famous not only for his wicked banjo playing, but also for his welcoming spirit and smile. Listen to episode one of this series for more on Richard and his band, the Black Mountain Bluegrass Boys. Richard was always so complimentary about no matter how lousy a musician you were, he was always, he found something nice to say. All those guys did as well. And that's, you know, probably where Richard learned that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, it's it's to make you feel good. And, you know, and unless you're doing a performance up on a stage with a, a certain band, you know, it's wide open. You need to in, be inclusive. The other thing inclusivity brings is the unique way that this music is passed down. Because so much of the learning and teaching is still done in person, one-on-one or in a small group. Passing down these tunes becomes like a multi-generational form of musical telephone. You know, music, I don't read music or anything, I just play. And that's the way, I'm doing the same thing they did, you know. Mm-hmm. That's the way they did it, that's the way I do it. And again, my tunes aren't going to be exactly like theirs because through my tunes, mm-hmm. I'm playing a version of Melvin's tune or I'm playing a version of Glenn Smith's tune or something like that. And that's something that's been kind of sticking with me lately as you know, this is my version, or I learned this off of so-and-so who then changed it to his version, you know, we're the great interpreters, mm-hmm. and and how, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, laid upon us. And that's how it works. They would listen to these guys play, and then they would go 30 or 40 miles back to where they lived and play the tune that was in their head, and that was their version. Mm-hmm. And that's how it works. That's the folk process. And I tell people, I keep it alive every day. <laughs> I'm keeping the folk process alive, you know, because that's, that's how it changes. And, and again, from right here. If yeah. it comes from right here, you, you mean it. Mike is patting his chest, hand over his heart as he's talking here. This fiddle tune I'm going to play, it's, an old, it's a Burl Hammonds tune. And again, it's, you know, a lot of the stuff I do is not necessarily exactly like the older artists did it. It's, uh, you know... It's right here. It's it's what I play. It's how I play it, and it and and uh, I think that that's a key thing. And one of the things that all of the older guys told me all along was the fact that you know you play it the way you play it, and if it comes from the heart, that's fine. You know that's how you do it. And I like to make the tunes mine. Uh, Burl claims he made this tune up. He, it's called Sugar Grove Blues. It's not played that often, and. Uh, I can remember hearing him play it years ago, and I just sort of play by my my, my memory the way I hear remember hearing him play. It. Mm-hmm. 
that special something you feel more than you hear in Mike's playing, and well, the playing of all the musicians we've had on the story sessions, comes from playing from the heart, which is why passing down these tunes person to person to keep them alive is so important for the tradition. Speaking of you know keeping it alive, um, we had Trevor Hammonds yeah. uh, just a, a few weeks ago here, and you know he he shared a lot of the same songs and a mm-hmm. lot of the same stories. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your time with Lee? Or you know Lee was the great grandfather, grandfather of Trevor, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's just you know I I just remember I would always go up there to where he he had his his house and we would sit there and he just loved to play. Uh, one thing that really struck me, when I first started playing, I thought everybody had to play a certain way, and you had to play in contest, and to prove that you were worthy, you had to win. And that was the kind of a, a, an attitude among a lot of the, the musicians at the time. If you wanted to prove that you were worthy of being a musician, you had to win these contests. So I played in this one down here, and it was that uh, Quince Dillon high detuning song. I played that song and won. And Mr. Lee was down here that time. So we went up to his house and he played a banjo tune. He gave me a banjo and said, here, you play it. So I played Quincy Dillon. And he looked at me and says, Mike, he says, you know, you should have won that banjo contest. And I had, but it dawned on me, it didn't matter. Winning the contest did not matter. What mattered was playing the music. And after that, I care less about contest. Yeah, I could care less about it. I mean, I played in more of them. It was a source of income. But the thing is, it didn't. You know, win, lose, draw didn't matter because the music is is was what you should be playing for, not a contest. So that's sort of my take on it. <laughs> all these guys are gone now and all I have are the memories. He cut his thumb off building the dulcimer up there and then when I went up he had this big patch on but he could still, he still played his banjo and he would play the dulcimer some and he had, you know, he could bow on the fiddle some. And I can remember one story Sherman says, Dean, he says, I was catching the trout like you couldn't believe. And I had my limit. He says, I'd always keep five because the limit's six. He says, I kept five right there with me and I threw the others up under the bridge. And he says, I'll be dang that game warden didn't come by. And he says, Sherman, how many fish you caught? He goes, why? He says, I just got the five right here. And he says, well, whose are these laying up here this five or six laying up here under the bridge. And Sherman says, well, Deed, I never did know there was fish up there. He says, well, I'll just have to take them. So he picked them up and took them. And Sherman looked and says, he took my fish. <laughs> but Sherman got a few tickets today oh, yeah. <laughs> over the years. Really? Yeah. yeah, but you know, think about it. They were back in the day when there weren't any rules. called that tune Groundhog and you got to kind of envision being out on the Williams River and nothing else you're not hearing any sounds or anything like that all you're hearing is this banjo playing and echoing off of those mountains out there and it's uh 
you know, made quite an impression on me. And I can remember sitting in his house out there and uh, Maggie was telling a story. And it was right as the sun was going down in the evening. And I sat down there on the couch and he had one of those couches that like when you sit down, you go up to your armpits, you know, where you sink into it. And they had just a little old like 40 watt light bulb hanging in the middle of the room and the sun was going down and all you could do was, all I could see was Maggie's silhouette against the sun that was going down by the window. And it was, you know, at the time I really, I had no idea I was living the history that I was living, but just to be caught up in that moment is, uh, it's just something that's really hard to, you know, you almost had to be there, but it just added to all the lure of the, their stories and, and the things the Hammonds did. Now, Sherman, I played this one tune that Sherman really liked it. He didn't, he didn't play it, but he wanted me to play it and sing it for him. And it was a tune called Muskrat. And I'm not really sure where I learned it. Um, you know, the old saying, they said that if you can remember the 60s or the 70s, you really weren't there. So some of these are places I learned these tunes are a little foggy. <laughs> and I'm not sure who the source is or anything, but this tune is called Muskrat. About it, they didn't have a lot of access to TVs, anything like that. So stories were their one—that's their one communication, mm -hmm. you know. And then the way they could tell them, and just you know, you'd <laughs> get a stitch laughing because it just—it's just the way they presented the stuff. It's a step back in time. Look how we live. Look, look where we live. I mean, if this is a different place, yeah. I mean, that's obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, we play for a lot of square dances. We, of course, we've played here a lot, you know, on the at the Opera House, but we'll do like a square dance in Dunmore. And it's like stepping into the 20s and 30s. You know, you've got all these people come out and they sit around and they dance and they'll sit around the edges and everybody just has a great time, you know? And, and, and my dad says, man, time really goes slow here. I said, yeah, we live longer here in Pocahontas County because time does go a lot slower. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, another thing that as I've heard from a lot of musicians that have come through here is playing on the Williams River. I, f I feel like every single person has brought that up. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's playing and hearing it, hearing it bounce yeah. off, you know, the, the mountains. Right, and again, like I said, it, when the, when like Sherman or Burr or somebody would play out there, it was just individual playing, it wasn't group playing. But when we would, you know, when we were staying like out at Sherman's, we would play in the evening across the road from the house and all. You've got to kind of envision being out on the Williams River or this could have been down Steelwell, but hearing this reflecting, you know, echoing off of the mountains. And if it comes from the heart, that's fine, you know, that's how you do it. This has been an Opera House Story Session. 
This podcast is produced by me, Ryan Krofcheck, and Emily Chen Newton of Figure Podcasts. Huge thanks to our special guest this episode, Mike Burns, as well as Mary Sue Burns for joining him on a few tunes. Also thanks to Bryn Cusick, as well as the entire Opera House Foundation for their guidance on this series, which is funded in part by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the Snowshoe Foundation, West Virginia Department of Arts, Culture, and History, and by listeners and supporters like you. If you've enjoyed listening to the Opera House Story Sessions, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform, as well as give us a like, subscribe, share. Check out more episodes on our website at pocahontasoperahouse.org. Our theme music comes from the Black Mountain Bluegrass Boys, and this episode features tunes from Lee Hammonds, Mike, and Mary Sue Burns. And another thing about all these festivals, I don't ever remember eating. I don't know how we survived, but... (laughs) 